the accounts we were handling didn't give us time to breathe. And I think instinctively to keep sane, whatever free time I had eventually got devoted to the comic book. Have you ever been told you should get a more sensible career? On this show, we speak with creators and artists in Asia who ignored that advice to find success in their creative field. We'll learn how they paved their own path, dealt with roadblocks and challenges, and gained hard-earned lessons on their way to building a unique and singular foolish career. I'm your host, Timmy Sitanko. How many of us would like to get our work on Netflix one day? This episode's guest has done just that. And he did it while working a demanding day job and raising a family. So while working long hours as a creative director at an ad agency in Manila, he started writing the graphic novel Trece, featuring a heroine who walks among Filipino mythical creatures and solves supernatural cases. Trece has been acquired by Netflix, but it was a long road and wasn't even his original goal, which was to get published in America. Today, advertising executive, creative director, and award-winning comic book writer Budget Tan is talking to us about his foolish career. It all started with a love for TV shows and a first job at a radio station. My dad was in TV. He produced shows. He was the station manager of one of the channels. And eventually, when he left that, he started to be a block timer, meaning he would buy hours from a TV station and then he would bring in his own shows, which meant that me and my brother grew up getting to watch advanced episodes of G.I. Joe's, Transformers, Voltron, Twilight Zone. So that's how we would spend weekends. You would go to his office to watch these shows ahead of everyone else. This might explain why, unlike a lot of us who went into the corporate world soon after college, you instead went to write for a radio station that was broadcasting using a one kilowatt transmitter. It was one of those things that was in a wanted ad. And, you know, we thought, how cool that we get to work in a radio station. So in that radio station, they assigned each of us different hours of the day. Everyone else got the morning show and the news and the sports show. And I don't know if it was because we were late, but we got the night shift. And the producer said, oh, why don't you make a show about ghost stories? And that was the only brief they gave. And you have one hour to fill up. It was in this tiny radio station that the seeds of Tresse were planted. With an hour to fill, Budget and his collaborator Mark Gatella decided to divide the hour into 15-minute segments each featuring a different type of ghost story. Mark was the one who came up with, okay, the first 15 minutes of the show are ghost stories, but it should be set in the city. It's always set in Metro Manila. He was the one who wrote the first script. And he created a host, you know, just like in Twilight Zone, you had Rod Serling come in to introduce every show, right? In Tales from the Crypt you always had the Crypt Keeper come in to introduce the show. So the name of the narrator of that show was Anton Trece. For me, it had that vibe of, it felt like a very Pinoy-sounding name. Like It had the same vibe when you heard John Constantine, you know, Fox Mulder. You knew he was a man of mystery. But in the entire time we used him, he was just really introducing the show. And then he would tell you the ghost story 
and then he would give you the conclusion of the story. So we never really got into the history of Anton Tresek. So you built out this portfolio and this radio experience alongside freelance writing was enough to get you a copywriter job at Harrison Communications. And you stayed for 11 years. I have heard of very few advertising professionals who stay at one firm for 11 years. How did you do that? Or why did you do that? I was an idiot, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it's not a bad thing. It's, it's just unusual and actually really great. I think being in an ad agency was like my first, you know, legit job coming from years of freelancing. And it felt like going through college again. It felt like my first four years in that company was learning the ropes, understanding the basics of what advertising is. So I think that by the time it felt like I already knew what I was doing, that they had moved me to a different uh, brand, a client. So that is the the nice thing about being in an agency. So yes, you can get burned out just working on one account for many, many years. But you do have the advantage of working on other brands. And when that happens, then you are using the same skill set, but you are now faced with new problems. So if in one campaign you're talking to kids, now you have to talk to moms. Now you have to talk to teenagers. That's what advertising people love, you know, being a problem and coming up with, you know, how do you tell this story? So you touched a bit on burnout and you had a funny quote about it, actually, where you describe the work hours as nine to five, quote unquote, meaning you come in at nine in the morning and you leave at 5 a.m. the next day. Um, And yet, Trese was born during this time, right? In 2005, you and your co-creator, Kajo, started it. And somehow, Kajo managed to convince you to write a comic book in 30 days amidst all the crazy ad agency hours. How were you able to do that? Because back then, there was no Facebook, Timmy. Now, now I can't write anything. It feels harder. Yeah, 2005. Life in advertising is daily rejection. And you get the occasional win of getting your ideas approved. And if you're really, really lucky, then you do something spectacular and you might win an award. But on a day-to-day basis, you need to find something that's not dependent on other people's approvals. And I think that's what we just had in mind. When I told Kajo, let's just get this story done, have fun with it, and maybe sell copies to a couple of friends. (laughs) At that time, I think it had been a couple of years since I ever launched a, a comic book. And I was just getting very, very busy with advertising work. And then Kajo sends me that text message. And he said, Budge, let's make a comic book and let's make it a monthly comic book. And and I texted that. That's impossible. (laughs) And he said, I promise you, if you can give me a 20-page script, I will draw it in 20 days, meaning one page a day. Okay. And then he said... And then after I'm done with the 20 pages, I will then take 10 days to put the, the, the word balloons, the lettering in it, clean it up, make the cover. So in 30 days, we would have a 20-page comic book. So he had mapped it out in his head. 
And I said, when do you plan to do this? And he said, I will do it on my lunch break. And I needed to put it to a test. So I quickly typed up a page of Anton Trese like fighting on a swan. And I sent it to him. And true enough, in an hour, he emails me that page. But when I saw that page, I just went, this is so great. But why does it look so typical? And what, what just clicked in my brain, and I quickly texted him back, I said, what if Trese was a woman? And then Kajo said, that's cool. That'll make her more badass, is what he replied. <laughs> and by the end of the day, he sends me a sketch. Eventually, I figured out her name's Alexandra Trese. So I finished the script. I sent it to him. And true enough, in 30 days, he finishes it. We had our first issue. And then he said, okay, where's the next issue? And then that just kept happening month after month after month. So I needed to come up with a plan on where to sell it. Mm. The only guy that I knew at the time was Mike Simbulan, who owns Comic Quest. So I went there and said, Mike, can I sell my comic books? It's Xerox. Sell it for 30 bucks. You get a huge chunk, 10% of it. <laughs> what a deal. Oh, yeah, yeah. I'm sure... <laughs> I'm sure he knew he hit the gold mine that day. Yeah. Also, let's clarify to listeners when you say 30 bucks, that's 30 pesos. pesos. <laughs> it's less than a dollar. <laughs> because we thought, you know, it, we, yeah, I was just thinking maybe no one's going to buy this. So let's make it really cheap. <laughs> and people will feel okay if they didn't like it, right? But the amazing thing that happened was that I dropped off 30 copies at his store and a week later I get a call from their store clerk and they said oh you've run out of copies can you deliver more and that started to happen week after week so it's like whoa people are starting to buy our 30 peso comic book who were these first readers did you ever meet them I'm sure I have because every now and again someone would come up to us at a comic con and they would still have the original photocopied, you know, Trese. But I guess they were the regular customers of Comic Quest that just got curious enough in it. Hey, it's 30 pesos. So A lesson in pricing. Don't do what we did, kids. <laughs> but talking about pricing, there was a period of time when Comic Quest needed to fix up its inventory. Mm-hmm. So we couldn't sell in Comic Quest at a, uh, for several months. So I saw that uh, there was one particular month when Marvel or DC decided to upload an entire issue of trade paperback that was coming out. Okay. So they uploaded the first issue and they said, coming out next month is the entire story on a trade. So I uploaded the entire first issue of Trese on my blog and promoted it on the message boards of Pinoy Exchange. Some people were telling me, why are you doing that? You're going to get pirated or once people read it, they don't want to buy your stuff anymore. But the complete opposite happened. And I started to get email from people saying, I read your comic book. Where can I buy it? So there is still a benefit to sharing your story and not be afraid of, oh, somebody's going to steal my idea. Mm-hmm. To which some comic book veteran said, what makes you think your idea is worth stealing? <laughs> <laughs> and if you're really a creative, you will come up with a better one next time. <laughs> so at this point, Tressa is starting to build a fan base. And Budget's advertising career is also continuing to advance. 
After Harrison Communications, he joined digital agency MRM, where he eventually became executive creative director. He would show up at the annual Comic-Con Philippines, where one year he introduced himself to Neil Gaiman. There's a funny post on Budget's blog with a photo of him kneeling, or genuflecting, at the table where Neil was signing books. Along the way, Teresa also won a couple of national book awards. All these things are happening in parallel. How did you do these two things? Were there specific strategies that you had to work out because there was so much going on? Or did you just take it day by day? I wish I knew the answer to that. That's a good question to you. <laughs> How did I manage? The short answer, I guess, is, yeah, I took it day by day. And it's whatever was at my desk is what I worked on. And I just kept my head down and just work towards the goal. Some people just keep looking up at their cubicle and they're always looking at, how do I get the corner office? They're so busy just thinking about, how do I get up there? How do I get that promotion? When they fail to realize that if they keep their head in the game and the job, eventually you look up and you realize you're already there. And again, because... The accounts we were handling didn't give us time to breathe. It was just like, here's the next job. And we just had to keep working at it. And I think instinctively to keep sane, whatever free time I had eventually got devoted to the comic book. So if, for example, on a typical overtime night, after dinner at the office, we would all agree on like, you do this, you do that. I'll come back in an hour or two hours and let's look at the campaign, which which will be presented at 8 a.m. tomorrow, right? Oh, my God. So when I take that coffee break, then I go with my notebook and that's the time I take to write the comic book. Something I still do now is whatever my workbook is, on one side, everything over here is agency related. Everything over here is comic book related. So back to back. Yes. So if I am writing an idea for an ad here and I get stuck, Mm -hmm. sometimes my mind wanders and figures out the solution to the comic book. So I go and fix that. And by the time I fix the, the plot problem, I would have figured out how to fix this problem. Oh, so actually they helped each other in a strange way. Yeah, each job was a distraction for the other thing, but kept me going. And I think the other wonderful thing advertising taught me was to respect a deadline. Before advertising, there was that typical mistaken notion of a newbie to say, I'm going to write the best comic book story ever, and I'm going to take my time perfecting it. And of course, that got me nowhere. So when Kajo said, give me the script at the beginning of every month so that by the end of the month, we'd have the comic book, then that became a a deadline to follow. And then one last thing is that writing a TV commercial, it's 30 seconds long. But if you break it down in terms of frames, that's actually like a 12-page comic book. So I think thinking in 30 seconds helped me to start 
compressing and editing storylines so that by the time Kajo said, give me a 20-page comic book, it was already built in on how to write a 20-page comic book. A quick word. Do you have a question for budget? Our guests are up for answering listener questions. Leave us a voicemail at getafoolishcareer.com or DM us on the socials. We're at Foolish Careers on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Okay, back to the show. We'll talk about the comics a bit more later. I wanted to ask you about moving brand side to Lego. Mm. So you're now a senior brand creative at Lego. How does that work change when you represent a single brand? I thought it was, this was going to be easy. I thought it's going to be Lego. It's going to be so much fun. And what I did not expect was uh, a brand new learning curve because it is a global company. And that the company has its working culture. But at the same time, there is the Danish culture to also find. So as I was talking to the other Pinoys, and thankfully here, the same guys I worked with in Harrison and in Macan are also here. When we were re- reflecting on it, oh, you know, our, uh, that bag of tricks that we had in Manila doesn't work here anymore. What's an example of that? In, in the Philippines, you put a pun on the headline and it's like, yeah, that's, you know, <laughs> let's write a jingle about the micronutrient deficiency and it's going to be the biggest hit of that season because you know you need to talk about micronutrient deficiency so things like that because since it is a global brand there is now a big need to actually tell your story with less words thankfully the experience we had in telling comic book stories come into play of course you can still translate all of the dialogue and all of your taglines But to translate your campaign into 80 languages, is it's an expense if you think about it. So as much as possible, the challenge is can you tell your story as visually as possible? But now you're not just collaborating with the people in front of you. You're now collaborating with five different markets around the world. How can I come up with a story that addresses different needs without having to come up with 20 different variations of a storyline. Lego looks like it's fun from the outside. Is it as fun as it looks? It's uh, it's still work at the end of the day. It's fun because you know, you can really, really feel what the family, the, the Christiansons, when they started this company, that intent and that ambition remains the same. And you could feel it. It's not fake at all. You know, some big companies can easily say, yeah, we stand for the betterment of man, you know. <laughs> blah, blah, blah. Yeah, 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 exactly. Especially with what's happening now with the pandemic, you can feel how much care the company puts in its people. They will try to take care of the needs of the people so that you can focus on the work. But it's still, it's uh, it's a complex beast is what it is. And do you get to go home at 4 p.m.? But whatever happens, we get to go home at 
4 p.m. And that's what just blows my mind. It's like we have this massive campaign that needs to happen. And in the Philippines, you go home and your child doesn't know who you are anymore. It's that kind of situation. But over here, massive, massive campaign. And it's like four o'clock. Okay, bye-bye. I gotta go. (laughs) I love that discipline and that respect for private time. Exactly, exactly. So what we realized was everyone goes home at four. But what happens is the moment people come into the office, that's like meeting after meeting or it's a chunk of work. Yeah. So that by the time you do go home at four, you had accomplished what would typically you would spend on like OTing on a typical uh, Monday night, right? Mm, yeah. Uh, in, in Manila. So it is still very work intensive, uh, even though it sounds <laughs> like you get to go home early. So while you're working at Lego, Trese continues its growth. You have producers, Base Entertainment, who for several years have been pitching the idea of bringing Trese to life as some kind of TV or live action movie. Actually, since 2012. Yes. And it's taken a while, but now it's part of the Netflix anime roster. And you mentioned while Base was shopping Trese around that there were interested parties, but the right ingredients were not in place. What ingredients were you looking for? I'm trying to edit my answers now. I'm like, <laughs> I, had, I had a very flippant answer, and I don't know if Base will appreciate it if I said it out loud. <laughs> when we had envisioned it as a live action movie or TV show back then, there might be an interested party, but then they would say, this is how much we want to invest in it. And to me, it was like, wow, that's a lot of money. Let's go for it. And base entertainment were like, no, no, no. Yeah. yeah. So, but base was looking at it as, yes, this company has done, you know, XYZ TV shows or movies. They're great. But if they will only invest so much, then it means your movie or this TV show will only look like this. It's not going to be the best way to bring your vision to life. And then, of course, when we had some talks with local studios in the Philippines, one of my favorite questions was, can't, can't we give Trese a romantic, you know, uh, uh, romantic leading man? Lead? Oh, my uh, God. So, I mean, that was also a, a way that shows that maybe they're not getting what this is all about. So, sure, they know what makes for a big hit, but maybe this isn't it for them. Can you tell me about the day you found out that Netflix was interested? I really wish I could tell you this great story where we're all together in a room and then the phone rings and then we get the call of like that it's Netflix and they're like saying, yeah, we like your story. We're going to produce it. And we'd all like jump up and high five each other and like, yeah, we got it. We got it. Yeah, here's a blank check. You know, we love it. Go, go produce it. But I found out through a text message. I was in Denmark. Kajo was in Davao. Tanya was in Manila. So it was like, we get the message and I'm like looking at the phone and going, yay! (laughs) Celebrate jumping up and down by myself. Now it was, we knew that they had pitched it. That Mm. they had pitched it to Netflix. We knew that they were interested in it. And eventually it was just, yes, we're doing it. (laughs) 10 years. They've been pitching it for 10 years. 
they were the ones who had faith in the property. I never discouraged them, but it just, but it did feel like, will this ever happen? It, we did have that talk of like, really, is this going anywhere? Or what do we, and that's why there would be like moments of, hey, look, maybe we should give Trece a romantic angle. Because <laughs> that producer over there, he really likes it. I would say, why not these guys? They've done really cool movies. And they would say, no, we got to wait for the right one. Looking back now, I think that was what was really great with Tanya and Shanti, that they knew what they were looking for. And when the right door opened, we were ready for it. And now there's a lot of press around Trece. Coconuts Manila went so far as to describe Trece's success as, quote-unquote, inevitable. But clearly it wasn't. Yeah. <laughs> you know, and like from your whole story, it's, it's so obvious. You went through a lot of rejection along the way. Did you always handle that rejection well? Uh, oh. You're shaking Uh, your head. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, I do not handle rejection well. Despite the 20 years of experience getting... I know, I know, I know. I should be. It's funny that it's so easy for me to dish out the same advice to young creatives. But when it happens to me, it's like, it's the end of the world. (laughs) We'll never recover from this. (laughs) So it's how you use it. So let me talk about why we did Indiegogo. It's a good example of giving yourself a goal and then trying out different ways to reach that goal. Remember, Budget and Kadra's main goal was to get published in the States. In 2018, they decided to try Indiegogo, a service similar to Kickstarter, to get in front of more American readers. Me and Kadra, of course, cannot help but dream and, and ask, can this be our day jobs? Is there a way we can actually make a living out of Trece? Because we look to our heroes and, well, they're doing it. Why can't we, right? Mm-hmm. Why can't we have that slice of the pie as well? So we've been sending Trece to U.S. publishers. One of them didn't reply at all. One of them rejected us. When did we do that? 2018, yeah. Mm-hmm. We, we, we sent out a brand new package sent it to the publisher, and we got a really nice rejection letter. I mean, you know, it's one of the few times somebody replied to us and explained, you know, why. So when I told Kaja, oh, we got rejected by this company. We're talking about what else can we do so that we would get an international audience. A couple of weeks later, Kaja texts me again, can we put it in Indiegogo and I want it up by September? And you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to redraw the entire issue. And I said, Kajo, that's impossible. (laughs) Kajo should be a producer. She's really good at doing deadlines. Yeah. So I said, but but we need to finish book seven. And he said, no, no, no. I can do book seven and redraw issue one of Trece. And I said, but by September? You want it out by September? And he said, yeah, we announced it September and then we get the comic book out by October. Mm-hmm. You know, it, it, I still felt that looking at all of the best examples of how to do a Kickstarter in Indiegogo, I still feel we didn't have all of those best practices. But uh, the time came when God just said we should have it ready. <laughs> so it went live and we started to promote it. And two things happened that just made us reach our goal. Before the Indiegogo campaign, 
one guy, and I now need to track this guy because I owe him a lot. One Filipino tweeted Neil Gaiman and said, Neil, dear Neil, why don't you write uh, a story about Philippine myth? And Neil Gaiman replied something like, oh, but there are more talented people in the Philippines and I wouldn't want to get into a mythology I don't know much about. I mean, words to that effect. And of course, people would tag me and all of the other Filipino comic book authors. So by the time we had Indiegogo up, I sent Neil Gaiman an email basically saying, Dear Neil, remember me? I was the one who kneeled in front of you. <laughs> I now have a comic book on Indiegogo. Can you help me promote it? And boom, he tweets that. And then by sheer coincidence, on my birthday, on November 9. Netflix announces they're doing the Trece animation. And that just pushed us, you know, into hitting the, the target. Wow. So, you know, that domino effect really helped. The news for Trece coming out to Netflix comes out the day after I get an email from Ablaze. Mm. So a publisher in the States. A publisher in the States. So funnily enough, because of all of those things, we got to the goal of international distribution. Yeah. So just having all these different pokers in the fire. We've mentioned Kajo a lot. And without him, there would be no Trese. You've now been collaborating with him for 15 years. What lessons are there in having a successful collaboration like that? We never talk to each other. It's <laughs> <laughs> the best way to do it. Just don't talk at all. No. What do you mean? <laughs> like every few months, you'll just get a message from him or he'll just get a message from you. Yeah. <laughs> it's all Vulcan mind meld. Yeah, yeah. I think since we both worked in an ad agency, I think that's where we learned uh, how is it like to collaborate with a partner? Your biggest mistake in ad agency work is thinking that this is my work. Mm. You know, how dare you change the words on my headline? Because then you fail and you will always be heartbroken. And more often than not, you are paired off as copy and art since it is a co-created work. He would tell me, Budge, why don't we do this? Or what if we do that? And same with me. When I see stuff, even on a sketch stage, then I would ask him, what if? What if we do it this way or that way? Being open to the other guy's input and having a good discussion about it if you don't agree. That is what has kept me and Kajo going. And it feels fairly smooth. And that you have that trust that the other person will deliver. So when Kajo says, you know, I'll get this done by this time, then that's pressure for me to like, oh, I got to finish this part. Because he's going to be done by that time. I know some people who collaborate, they love sitting in front of each other. They're going to have beer or coffee and just talk about things together. Some people love that kind of brainstorm. Mm. But for me and Kajo, it's always mostly been through email or messages. And then when I was in Manila, the times we would be in front of each other was at Comic-Con. So That's it. That's it. Yeah. So while we're there signing or waiting for people to come by our desk, again, he just throw something up in the air and say, what do you think if we do this? (laughs) 
and I'd say, okay, okay, I'll, I'll take note of it. I'll write that down. And then, yeah, eventually some of those ideas that he just like throw my way would filter into the story. So there's also a little bit of improv that happens. In a creative career like yours, would you choose talent over passion? And why? Somebody said, there are many, many talented people out there who are not persistent enough and do not collaborate enough and are not problem solvers. That you might be the most talented person in the room, but if you don't follow up, if you don't submit on time, if you don't know how to collaborate with your artist, writer, editor, publisher, then eventually people would rather not work with you. And if you are the kind of talented person that can work in a vacuum and be able to like still sell your work, then good for you. And yes, you can't be all passion and have crap come, you know, and sell crap. Although we have seen people successfully sell crap is, <laughs> is the heartbreaking thing to me. How are these people able to sell crap and make lots of money, right? Yep. Yep. Thanks for listening to Foolish Careers. If you enjoyed this episode, there's more where that came from. Subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. And I'd love to have you on the Foolish Careers newsletter. You'll get a new story a week featuring a storyteller, artist, or creative entrepreneur in Asia who ignored the advice to get a more sensible career. So join us at foolishcareers.asia. We look forward to hearing from you.